I made the ultimate embarrassing error on the air today. I was talking about the New York City Comptroller, John Liu, and I called him John Lynn. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. Because I am suffering from Lynn sanity. That's funny. Did you watch the game last night? I Well, I have Time Warner Cable, oh. which here in New York City is in a business dispute with MSG, so I couldn't actually see the game. But during the live radio show this morning, you know, we have three television monitors in the studio set to news channels in case anything important happens. And I was brainwashed by seeing that highlight of the three-point shot <laughs> at the buzzer last night. Lynn, 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 Lynn. So I said John Lynn, it came out John Lynn. Yeah, Brian, the problem with me being in Washington is that when you started to tell that anecdote and you said I made the ultimate mistake on the air, the guy's name is John Lou, my brain assumed that you had called him Jack Lou by accident, who's the White House chief of staff and former uh, OMB director. That shows how my brain works, that you were thinking basketball. I've got yeah, Jack Lou other... not in the zeitgeist in the same way, Todd. I I, I, not quite, <laughs> although in this town, maybe so. Although Lynn Sanity has gripped Washington, D.C., I'll tell you that. it's like Everybody's all over it. Nobody's focusing on the politics at hand. Everybody's all about this kid on the court. I've got Lynn Sanity. You've got Beltway Insanity, <laughs> oh, Jack <boy>. Lou. <laughs> Well, this is It's a Free Country, the podcast. I'm Brian Lehrer with Todd Zwillick, obviously the Washington correspondent for The Takeaway, and It's a Free Country political reporter, Anna Sale. And this is our weekly competition to see who can bring the most revealing political soundbite of the week. And, oh, by the way, we may have some interesting conversation about them. And, Anna, you have the envelope I have the with envelope. last week's winner. Last week's winner. I was on vacation last week, so, so I, my name won't be in this envelope this time. That's right. We had Carol Markowitz, It's a Free Country blogger, sitting in for you. And, and we had a very lively chat. So let me just open this. And you announce. won last week, you know. I heard two weeks in a row. You were not present to win, but I you won anyway. Pick Anna. it back up. Pick back up the... Okay. Oh, Todd, you were the winner hey. last week. However, I believe there's an asterisk. Uh-oh. Because I think that you used a clip that I used a couple weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> and one. That is, I resurrected your clip. That's true because it was revealing in a brand new way, M more revealing than we ever thought. I, I did break the rules. It was? Yet. It was the clip of President Obama talking during the State of the Union about the corrosive influence of money in politics and skipping right over Citizens United and Super PACs, right? Yeah, and I, I brought that back because it was last week, of course, that um, the Obama campaign announced that it was releasing its surrogates and fundraisers and bundlers to go ahead and raise money and advocate for um, pro-Obama super PACs in a 180-degree reversal. So that clip was revealing when the president said it, and it became surrealistically revealing mm -hmm. after last week in the super PAC decision. That's why I resurrected it. I know it's not, it's not, uh, wasn't exactly kosher, but boy, have our politics changed in the last year, the last year and a half. With an asterisk, he will go into the record books for his second. <laughs> the Roger Maris of this podcast. Exactly. But that was last week. Now it's this week. And since uh, in this league, winners take the ball out, Todd, you go first. <laughs> All right. So for this week's clip, um, so I'm I'm actually speaking to you guys from Capitol Hill right now, and we are in uh, we have been in the midst of this debate over renewing, extending the payroll tax cut 
you know, remember back in December, Republicans, guys, took major political hits when Democrats cornered them and essentially got Republicans on the wrong side of a middle-class tax cut. Um, Republicans political philosophy, as we all know, is tax cuts are always good. Democrats came up with a tax cut that a lot of Republicans didn't want, and the rap on them, fair or not, was, was oh, you guys are only for tax cuts when they benefit the wealthy. You're not for this payroll tax cut that'll be good for the economy. Well, that two-month extension that they got from back in December is about to expire. They're getting close to an agreement here, and the way they got there was that after months and months and months of insisting by Republicans, Republican insistence, that an extension for the rest of the year, an extension of the payroll tax cut, be paid for, Republicans all of a sudden said, you know what, we'll extend it. It doesn't have to be paid for. Let me play you a clip of uh, House Speaker John Boehner sort of explaining why, from the Republican perspective, they, they did a 180 on their position of paying for this tax cut and have now seemed to get, uh, get close to a deal extending payroll tax cut and unemployment benefits for the rest of the year. We were not going to allow the Democrats to continue to play political games uh, and raise taxes on working Americans. Uh, and so uh, we made a decision uh, to, to bring them to the table uh, so that the games uh, would stop and we would get this work done. All right. Well, there you hear John Boehner giving his spin, you guys, on why they dropped, why Republicans dropped their insistence that a $100 billion extension of the payroll tax cut must be paid for because we don't want the Democrats playing any more games, he says. Um, that's that's really true from the Republican perspective, but it's revealing, I think, insofar as how it shows how the Democratic messaging over the economy and taxes is really starting to take root. Democrats, in many ways, have President Obama to thank for this. You know how the president goes around talking about shared sacrifice and the Buffett rule and income equality and getting everybody to share, you know, to share in the recovery or share in the sacrifice for the recovery. Well, it's really taking root because Republicans decided at some point in this debate that they were going to get beat up all over again. And and the better choice for them, instead of sticking by their guns and insisting uh, that the tax cut be paid for and fighting it out with Democrats, again, was simply to reverse their position. And I think it's very revealing uh, as to the effectiveness right now. And this can change, and I'm sure it will. We're a long way from the election. Um, there are a lot of corners to turn, but I think it's a testament to the to the newfound solid footing that Democrats, being led by the Obama reelect uh, effort, have found on the issue of taxes and economic recovery. Incidentally, not paying for that tax cut, $100 billion on the deficit. So that's a big Republican reversal. I think it's even more than that. I think, and we may have talked about this on the very first It's Free Country, the podcast, that the whole payroll tax, unemployment extension debacle in December may have been the Tea Party's Waterloo, hmm. that they overreached to the point where they were opposing an actual tax cut that helped actual middle-class Americans, because it's on the payroll tax, which only goes up to about $110,000 of income, um, over the issue of not finding a way to pay for it. What other things were they insisting that the government cut back on that they didn't like, food stamps, whatever was in that? And... They overreached. It became an unpopular position, and John Boehner had to run with his legs between his uh, his tail between his legs to reverse course. And I compared it at the time to the Terry Schiavo case back mm -hmm. just after yeah. mm -hmm. President Bush was reelected, 
when you know the religious right in the party overreached and thought they could go ahead and do anything, and all of a sudden, from there on down, the uh, the Bush administration and the Republicans who had taken control of Congress started to flail and fail. And it's also interesting, John Boehner's language there, Todd, talking about the Democratic game playing, because he's also borrowing President Obama's sort of way that he framed the congressional Republicans, that these are a bunch of game players who, and Obama positioning himself as the adult in the room. John Boehner is trying to now be the adult rising above rising above it all and moving on with the business of Americans. John Boehner had a chance to be the adult in the room last summer when <laughs> he and the president almost came to that the $4 billion dollar grand bargain. And the Tea Party wing of his caucus wound up exerting more pressure on him than what I think was his genuine impulse to be the grown-up in the room and make a historic compromise that could have been good for America. It has been extraordinarily frustrating for the speaker um, and revealing, I think, insofar as, you know, forget about his personal frustrations, the, the, the role that John Boehner has here going into this election. John Boehner's an establishment Republican. We've talked about that. He's no Tea Party. He's been around for a million years. He's got a constitutional role in government. His job, as I see it, is to really bridge the, the Republican wave of 2010. There a lot of people elected Republicans. They sent the Tea Party to Congress. John Boehner has to bridge that. That enthusiasm has to bridge that innate uh, that, that innate um, attractiveness that Republicans had at the time with the American electorate for where they are now. He's got to bridge that Tea Party enthusiasm with an electable, moderate presidential candidate who can win moderates and independents in the general election. That's the difficult job that John Boehner has, to actually be the conduit through which this, the conservative enthusiasm can reach somebody like perhaps Mitt Romney. We don't know if he'll be the candidate, but you know, presidential elections are one in the middle, and I think that this is all part of the same difficulty for John Boehner. He's really that bridge where we have yet to see whether or not he can bridge the gap between those is two wings of the Republican nowhere, Party. Todd? Yeah, maybe. He will find out a bridge to political obscurity we don't yet know, um, which I guess brings me to my clip when you talk about liberals, moderates, and conservatives. Um, did you hear the joke from CPAC, the mm -hmm. Conservative Political Action Conference, last weekend that got played and played and played? I don't even know who told it, but he stood it, up at the lectern. The, it Foster Freese, right? The Foster, super PAC the backer Freeze, yeah. of Rick Santorum. Ah, yeah. uh, that makes sense because he got up and he said, I've got a joke for you. A liberal, a moderate, a conservative walk into a bar and the bartender says, Hi, Mitt. Well, I considered <laughs> using that as the sound bite of the week. It was followed by boos and a couple of, you yeah. know, so a little bit but of... But what were they booing? <laughs> were they booing the joke? I or think it was they... some Romney supporters in the crowd, but then there were also some boos for just the for poor the, quality of the joke. The poor yes. quality of the actual humor. <laughs> and maybe <laughs> point taken. for Romney trying to be on every side of the issue. So my revealing clip of the week, the most revealing clip of the week, no doubt... Um, may require an asterisk as well if, in fact, I win the competition because this is really a mashup of clips of Romney at different times over the last few years that MSNBC compiled. That's the liberal cable uh, station, so they were doing it to make Romney look bad. But these all have to do with his lack of support for the auto bailout. 
billions and billions of dollars was written to bail out the industry and then they realized that that was not the answer. Were there some institutions that should not have been bailed out? Absolutely. Should they have used the funds to bail out General Motors and Chrysler? No. The headline you read which is said let Detroit go bankrupt points out that that those companies needed to go through bankruptcy to shed those costs. There's no question but that if you just write a check uh, that you're going to see these companies go out of business ultimately. You said quote if General Motors, Ford and Chrysler get the bailout that their chief executives asked for yesterday, you can kiss the American automotive industry goodbye. That's exactly right. If you write a check, they're going to go out of business. So a mashup of Mitt Romney's statements about the auto bailout, and this is revealing to me because it disproves the old cliche that all politics is local. Hmm. All politics is national when you're Mitt Romney and you're running for six years to be president of the United States, even when you're from Michigan. So now we approach the Michigan primary, which should be as much as of a gimme for Mitt Romney as any state. He did win it in 2008. His father was the governor there. He came from there. He's, in theory, very popular there. But you know the old Daily News headline having to do with New York? It was like, Mitt Romney to Detroit, drop dead. Drop dead. And he may well pay for it. Which is a local yeah. reaction. All politics is national and local. Is this really about Mitt Romney per se? It seems to me that Mitt Romney may have felt as though he had to comment on the bailout for Michigan, for his home state, for Detroit in this way, knowing where the Republican base was in the primary. But thinking as a politician, maybe, if you're running a general election campaign and you're going to be uh, you know, running for, for the big middle or the independents, you might find a way to – you might find a way to support the auto bailouts that it saved the industry, but say you would have done it differently. You know, a lot of Republicans, some of them conservative from Michigan here in Congress at the time of the auto bailouts, found a way, uh, found a way to support the auto bailouts. They might not have been four square behind the president, who was unpopular in a bad economy, but they found a way to support it because it was important for their workers, their voters, their people back at home. And it's, it's surprise. It, and it's revealing to me in that this may be more about the the unbridgeable gap between um, between winning the presidential election and Tea Party conservative politics as they stand right now. Potentially unbridgeable, they could very well win. Just the difficulty in bridging that—that that it's really about that and like Romney trying to bridge it, and just how hard it is right now. Another bridge to political obscurity, perhaps. <laughs> Well, I, I've got a, a my clip this week is Rick Santorum trying to sort of build his coalition, and and what I'm kind of interested in is is all these polls we've heard of of Rick Santorum gaining against Romney in the last week. It's focused on voters who are Tea Party supporters, evangelical Christians uh, who identify as conservative, and I've sort of wondered how much that layers upon sort of rural versus urban or suburban um, sort of geography. And so I was listening into his town hall in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho yesterday. This is Rick Santorum. And this isn't so much so mu about the content of this revealing clip. It's more listen to how he's framing, uh, you know, how he talks about environmental policy and, and is framing it as sort of a rural versus urban issue. Take a listen to this. Except, of course, the President of the United States has now got his EPA nosing around Pennsylvania saying, well, we're concerned about this new technology, hydraulic fracking. And why are they concerned about it? Because now the hydraulic fracking is not occurring in Texas in the oil fields, gas fields, 
or not in North Dakota. No offense to North Dakota and West Texas, but not a lot of folks in North Dakota and West Texas. And the folks that are there are perfectly comfortable with having that going on in their communities. But now we have fracking going within, oh, 100 or so miles of Philadelphia, 150 miles of New York. And so now the environmentalists have figured out, ha, money. We lost the, the battle on man-made global warming. We can't raise any more money on that now because they turned out that wasn't environmental science. It turns out man-made global warming wasn't climate science. It turned out it was political science. So the crowd liked it there. I mean, you have, of course, Rick Santorum saying man-made climate change doesn't exist. But, but what I'm interested in is, is this, this conversation, how he's framing as rural versus urban. And I, I took a look at, at who's been talking about this this week. And Dante Chinney, who's done some of the maps that we've had on It's a Free Country, looking at different community types and, and the different returns in the caucuses and primaries, did a really interesting analysis this week and, and asked the question of, is there class warfare happening within the Republican primary? And did an analysis of the 390 counties that have voted so far. And if you split those, the ones that are above the median income and below the median income, national median income, Mitt Romney's only won 15% of those below the median income. Rick Santorum has won 54% of those. So you have some interesting kind of income things happening. You have some interesting things, rural urban happening. And then this is on top of the other interesting article this week about geography and politics in the New York Times about counties that rely on more government support and how that affects their politics, in which they quoted a Dartmouth professor that said basically since 1980, counties that have taken on more, that have, that have relied on more government support through various programs have tended to be Republican and counties that haven't have tended to be Democratic. So I think these are sort of some interesting threads to watch as we head into the next couple of primaries. You know, your clip makes this upcoming Michigan primary more interesting to me than it was going to be. Um, The point that I was making around my clip this week was how it's probably strategically correct of Romney to sacrifice Michigan, if that's in fact what winds up happening, even though it's his home state, um, in pursuit of the national unpopularity of the auto company bailout, at least among Republicans. I'm not sure about the general electorate. However, if Santorum does well on sort of this class basis Mm -hmm. with those auto workers who are Republican um, and other people like that around the country, it really calls into question Romney's electability in the fall. Um, Look at a state like Michigan. Uh, It it is a swing state. And being from Michigan, it is a big advantage for Romney going in in a race against Obama – to be able to probably claim Michigan, but he's probably giving it up uh, for this exact reason. So with Santorum going for the rural vote, with maybe those urban auto workers gravitating away from Romney to somebody and Santorum giving them something to latch onto in a kind of Republican version of class warfare, um, this, uh, this may be bode very badly for Romney in terms of which constituencies he could hold in the fall if he's the nominee. And if it is Romney... You know, it also may suggest strategically, and we're flashing forward here, you know, crystal ball, I'm mixing metaphors, but 
wouldn't it be fascinating if Rick Santorum presented an electability case to Republicans that he doesn't have to cede the idea of a populist, class-based income inequality campaign to the White House, to, to President Obama, who is clearly running and appealing to people left out by Wall Street, left out by venture capitalists, left out by the big banks. Um, that's that's largely President Obama's pitch. It's been largely effective at this very early stage, although he hasn't really made it at a great volume yet. Wouldn't it be fascinating if it were Rick Santorum, but how could he do it tacitly and strategically? I can fight you on that field, and I can do well. How could President Obama? How could he actually do it, though? Because Obama would come back at him and say, "Oh, you talk like you're for working class Americans, but you're for the same." policies as the plutocrats. You want to repeal Dodd-Frank and unregulate Wall Street, which did what it did to mainstream America. You want to repeal Obamacare uh, and leave mainstream America vulnerable with respect to health insurance again. You've got the same policies as the plutocrat Mitt Romney, Mr. Santorum. How does he respond to that? Well, I think Rick Santorum is, is already saying it. He's focusing on his manufacturing plan. He's focusing on economic development in rural areas. And he's saying to these voters, I understand who you are. I share your values. I come from a coal mining family. Barack Obama does not come from the part of the kinds of communities that you come from, and I do. That may work in your home state of West Virginia, but <laughs> I'm telling you, Rick Santorum, if he's going to run a values campaign against Barack Obama, he's going to have a ton of trouble in the counties that probably most matter, the suburbs of Philadelphia, the suburbs of Denver, um, you know, the, the big suburban areas and the big swing states where I think soccer moms still prevail, the swing voting suburban women, um, in terms of who's probably going to decide the, the fall election, and Rick Santorum is just too socially conservative with his values for those voters. Can I ask the corollary question to this whole discussion, though? And it's a little bit more basic, and I, it occurred to me, Anna, as you were playing your clip. If Mitt Romney loses Michigan, isn't he finished? I mean, think of the perception, the momentum. His father was governor. He's from that state. You know, maybe he gives it up strategically, as you're saying, Brian, in order to do better in the general. But what is the narrative? What is the media coverage? If Mitt Romney loses Michigan, is he done? I don't think he's done. We were just talking about money at the top, top of this podcast, and, and that still matters. And, and, and it would be, you know, Republican voters are still saying in polls they wish there were other options. But, you know, who, who, who is, is Rick Santorum going to be the, con, the coalition candidate that everyone rallies around? Momentum can beat money. I believe momentum can beat money, even with all Romney's money and all his organization. But there has to be a lot of momentum. I think Gingrich would have to drop out of the race uh, or become so marginalized. And, you know, we, the media, Todd, get so wrapped up in giving everything that's happening in the moment such inflated importance. I don't think Michigan matters that much. I don't Mm. think that losing his home state thing, I do think it's a strategic sacrifice. And it could be a smart strategic sacrifice on the way to the nomination. I don't think that Michigan matters all that much, so just because he's from there. So for Mitt Romney makes him stronger, for instance, on Super Tuesday, um, where he wants to perform in the Southeast better, um, and, and that it's just a strategic move, in your view. That's the way I see it, anyway. Mm. 
just one more note on momentum. We had some breaking news while we were recording the podcast that uh, the Megadeth frontman, Dave Mustaine, has endorsed Rick Santorum. <laughs> now it's really that. Now it is definitely over. <laughs> By the way, for yeah. your for your tweeting needs, Megadeth, M E G A D E T H. There's no A in Megadeth. Thank, I would have made that it wrong. Yeah. I want to know what is on Ron Paul's iPod. <laughs> Judas Priest. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Todd. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Nice job. Nice job.